It's been a real privilege to be with you at Central today. I witnessed what I think is a miracle. We had one bag of Maltesers, and we had 40 students. And the Maltesers went all the way around the room and came back, and there were still three left. Either God multiplied the Maltesers, or you students don't eat chocolate. I mean, it's just bizarre, bizarre. I want you to imagine it's 4.45 on a Friday afternoon and we get a call. And thanks to caller ID, I can tell it's social services. And my wife answers the phone. And I can overhear it and they're saying, Krish, Miriam, we know you've already got a lot of kids in your house, but is there any chance you can take one more? I know my wife has already said yes in her head. But I've got questions. Question number one. What is it you can tell me about this person? Social worker says, we can't tell you much. All we can tell you is he's a biter. Biter. That is not what you want to hear. What does he bite? If he bites stuff, I can cope with that. We've got loads of teeth marks on our furniture from our cat. Our other kids, visitors. <laughs> but if he bites people, well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because where's he been? What's he been exposed to? And then the theological part of my brain starts kicking off. Biter. That is an inadequate description of a human person, isn't it? Because you and I are more than the worst thing we've ever done or the worst thing that's ever been done to us. When God looks at you, he doesn't just see the sin and the brokenness and the stuff we've messed up. God looks at us with grace and compassion and somehow still sees value and treasure in us, doesn't he? And so I've got no choice now. In he comes into our family. He was three years old and he'd already had eight different homes. He had speech delay. And so is it any wonder he might just bite just to let the world know that he's here? He bit a lot of stuff in our house, mostly sausages. And he turned our world upside down in the best way possible. He was an absolute delight. He is one, well, in Scotland, it's 11,000 children in the care system. In the UK, it's nearly 80,000. It's the most we've ever had. Family break, break, breakdown, drugs, abuse. 70% of the kids in the care system have experienced neglect or sexual or physical violence against them. And I believe God cares about every single one of those kids. And I think it's on us to do something about it. I think that for a number of reasons. Let me give you a New Testament reference and then we'll look at the Old Testament. New Testament reference number one. James chapter 1, verse 27. If you need a proof text for the home for good vision, that's it. Maybe you know it. True religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is a kicking worship band. You have a kicking worship band. They are awesome. Can we give them a round of applause for being awesome? They are a gift to you. 
But that is not how that verse ends. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is biblically sound expository preaching. You also have that here too, don't you? And your preachers are a gift to you, but that's not how the verse ends. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is, oh, it's on the screen, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. If God were offsteading the church's worship, this is what he's looking for. If God were doing an MOT of your spiritual life, this is what God is looking for. To what extent are we caring for the most vulnerable people in our society? That's what God wants. And this isn't a one-off proof text. I know you're thinking, the book of James, didn't Martin Luther say it was an epistle of straw? Well, no, all scripture is God-breathed. This bit too. But I want to show you this isn't a one-off. So if you've got a Bible, um, switch it on. And uh, let's look at James chapter, not James, let's look at Psalms. I'm going Psalms today. Uh, if you came in the morning service and you think you know all the answers, it's a different sermon. So you probably still know all the answers. All right, I'm going to read this to you. We're going to do a bit of a reflection and then I want to call you to action. Okay? And um, I guess there needs to be a warning to that. Um, God does business to us through his word. I became a foster parent because I couldn't avoid passages like the ones we're looking at today. The Bible and God and your faith may seriously disrupt the plans that you have for your life. But that's part of the fun of being a Christian, isn't it? That we are not our own. We have been bought at a price. And so here we are to make ourselves available for God's use. Psalm 68 verse 1. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him, may you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God, may they be happy and joyful. This is a psalm that was read every time they moved the Ark of the Covenant. Now every time I say the words Ark of the Covenant, I can't help it. I am transported in time. I am a teenager and I'm going to see a movie. I'm going to see the finest Indiana Jones movie ever made. I think there have been four. Have there been four? Only one of them was awesome. The first one. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know the story? Hands up if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know I'm really old. Yes. So the Nazis have been reading the Bible. Who knew? They've been reading the Bible and they've discovered that there is a weapon of mass destruction in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant. Whoever has the Ark of the Covenant at the front of their armies is going to win whichever war they enter in. Now I want you to know, Nazi exegesis is rubbish. That is not how the Bible story goes. But we'll just play along for the sake of the story. So the Nazis are on a hunt throughout everywhere in antiquity. All the uh, archaeological sites, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant. But it's been missing. It's been lost. But never mind. Somewhere in America, there is a man. This man, well, it's just not fair. He was the coolest person in the Star Wars universe. I mean, 
How about that? You get to be Han Solo, hands down, the coolest person in the Star Wars universe. And then he thinks, I know, for a side shuffle, I'll become the coolest person in this universe. His name, Harrison Ford, otherwise known in Norway as Harrison Fjord. By day, this man is a university lecturer. Maybe you notice some of your university lecturers coming back from uh, long-distance expeditions with cuts and snake bites all over them. Well, that was true for this man, Indiana Jones, because by night, he is an adventurer. And he has managed to get one step ahead of the Nazis, and he's tracked down the Ark of the Covenant. Well, using a kind of Legoland recreation uh, of the temple, uh, a kind of light beam and a crystal, and he's found it. I think he's found it somewhere in Egypt. And it's, it's buried in a, a place with Indiana Jones' arch enemies, snakes. So in he goes, finds the Ark of the Covenant. He is one step ahead of the Nazis. The problem with being one step ahead of the Nazis is they're one step behind you. So when you find the Ark of the Covenant, they find the Ark of the Covenant. There is a fan theory that the whole film sequence could have been uh, got rid of if Indiana Jones hadn't bothered going looking for the Ark of the Covenant. But he is caught. They take the Ark of the Covenant away, leaving Indiana Jones down there with the snakes. And they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in a box. And on the outside of the box, do you remember what was on the outside of the box? Nazi swastikas. And they put... The Nazi swastikas on the box with the Ark of the Covenant in inside a submarine. And then they get it from Egypt somehow to the Galapagos Islands. And it's a long journey. It's weeks and weeks. But some reason means that the, the U-boat never goes under the surface. Which is very lucky because Indiana Jones has escaped the pit of snakes. And he's hanging on to the outside of the submarine. And he's the coolest person in this universe, but still, he couldn't have held his breath for three weeks. So he makes it to the Galapagos Islands. They take the box out of the submarine, and something has happened. Do you remember what's happened to the box? The nasty, nasty, nasty swastikas have been burnt off. Oh, it's almost like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have been reading the Bible. And they've realized that you cannot put God in a box. He does not belong to one army in a war. Even though we pray for our soldiers, everyone else prays for their soldiers too. He's not on our side all the time. God does not belong to the independence movement or the Remain movement. He doesn't belong to Brexiteers or Remainers or Democrats uh, or Republicans. God's bigger than that. In fact, I think the psalmist might be hinting at that. When he says in verse 4, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. They sing this song every time they move the Ark of the Covenant and yet they know God cannot be contained in a box. He's the one that rides on the clouds. And then they open, the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant and there's only sand in there. But then the angel of death jumps out. And somehow Indiana Jones and his girlfriend know that if they just close their eyes, they won't be affected by the angel of death. Again, don't know which part of the Bible they've been reading. I think they'd been better off to daub their heads with blood, uh, as in the Exodus, wouldn't they? But anyway, closing your eyes was good enough. 
And, uh, but then this happens. Have a look at verse 2. May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. Do you remember that bit in the movie when the angel of death melts everybody's faces? I wonder if they've been reading this. I tell you, I had a recurring nightmare of going to church and, and, and you know, reading the Old Testament that my face might melt. This picture of God, a majestic king who cannot be contained, who's, who's a valiant warrior, who's unstoppable, it's really inspiring. But what does God do with all of this power? Verse 4, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who, who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. And then you get verse 5. Verse 5 undid me. It changed my family. It changed my career. It changed my, my passions. Because God, with all this power, then wants to name drop some people. I don't know if you've met those kind of people that you meet maybe at a party or maybe an interview or something. And within three minutes, they've told you the most famous person they've ever met. Or, or who they had last had dinner with or some famous politician they know, or something. They're just trying to make themselves look good by association with the rich and powerful. But when God wants to name drop somebody, look who he name drops. Verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. This God, with all his power, who rides on the clouds, who makes people's faces melt, he wants to tell you whose side he's on. He's not on your side in a battle or their side in a battle. He's on the side of the weak and the vulnerable and the needy. God has particular attention for them. Why? I thought God loves everybody. If God loves everybody, why is he telling you that he's a father to the fatherless? Surely he's a father to everybody. Why is he a defender of widows and orphans? Why isn't he a defender of everybody? What do we do with that? We say in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, every single person on this planet, everyone in this room, everyone in this city is loved by God. So why tell us that you show particular attention for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan? Have you ever phoned a paramedic? You know, when they turn up at the scene of an accident, they've got to assess some pretty hard stuff, haven't they? Imagine that a homeless person has been run over uh, by a politician in a Rolls Royce. And the politician has kind of got a bloody nose and the homeless person is bleeding out in the gutter. Who does the paramedic see first? Triaging means you see whoever's in need first. They go to the top of the queue, don't they? They're the most urgently needed person and therefore they get seen first. God triages the world and says, my top priority is for the vulnerable. Not because I love them more than anyone else, but they just need me more than anyone else. And if I don't speak up for them, who will? And so God is a God for the marginalized, the invisible and the neglected. A fatherless person in the ancient world had no hope. Because the father was the breadwinner. The father was the person that protected them. And if they didn't have a father, they had no one to care for them. A widow, similarly. Often women couldn't work. And so they, they couldn't earn a living and therefore they were in danger. 
God says, I am on the side of the vulnerable and I take care of them. And to be honest, when I read that passage, I realized that if I was going to be a follower of God, if I was going to say I loved God, I needed to prioritize those that he prioritized. Does that make sense? So let me ask you, as you look at your life, as we look at the church here and across the nation, are people saying to us that we are like God, a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows and orphans? Because if they're not, we're missing something vital about what it means to be a follower of God. Right now, there are thousands of children in the UK that are just waiting for someone to welcome them into their family and love them as their own. Right now, there are kids that are aging out of foster care. And when they age out of foster care, all the stats are against them. Because when you age out of foster care, the chances are you're going to end up one of our homeless population. Care leavers make up 1% of the population, but they make up 25% of our homeless population. Sadly, care leavers make up between 40 and 50% of our prison population. And in some areas, it's 30%. In other areas, it's 70% of sex workers are young women who have aged out of care. And we, the church, are doing a great job in working with the homeless and working in prisons and trying to end people trafficking and sexual exploitation. That is brilliant. But they needed your help earlier. They needed our help when we, they were five or six years old and they needed a family to take them in and love them. I tell you, none of my children are going to be homeless. I will not let that happen. Not on my watch. However bad it gets, however much money they run, run out of, however, whatever they do, there's always going to be a place for them in my house. Isn't that true in your family? Wouldn't that be true for your children? God says, I'll be that father, a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows and orphans. On our watch, kids are in trouble and therefore we need to step up. There was a church in Southampton that got this and they looked at their city and they realized that because of austerity, because of the cuts to local social services, there were major, major problems. And so a group of church leaders from across the city of Southampton went to see their council and they got the meeting. The council people looked a bit worried because it was Christians turning up and we have not a great reputation of turning up at these meetings. The council were waiting for the Christians to start complaining. What do you mean Sunday trading? What do you mean Winterval? It's Christmas. But that's not the tone that the church leaders brought. They said, look, we love the city of Southampton. Our churches are some of the oldest institutions here. And we want you to know we're going to continue loving this city well after austerity is gone and forgotten. And so we're here, council, to ask you, how can the church bless this city? I love your vision. What's your vision? Loving Edinburgh. Just like Southampton, Edinburgh is desperate for foster parents. I know that for a fact. So the council said to these church leaders, we need this year 40 more foster families. And one of the guys that went to that meeting had been in foster care himself as a teenager. 
He got converted in his foster placement uh, and then he grew up and became a church leader. And there he is in this room hearing they need 40 more foster carers. And so him and a mate, they went away and they prayed and they prayed. And then I get invited to a meeting. It's a bit like this. It was in uh, Southampton Central Hall. And there's politicians and MPs and uh, councillors and members of social services and church leaders and, and journalists and they're all there. And this guy had been in foster care. He said, you know what? The time I felt most welcome in my foster home was when, as a teenage foster kid, they gave me the front door key of the house. And so he'd made a plaque. And on it, he'd put 40 front door keys. And he'd put a text from the Bible. Psalm 68. God places the lonely in families and he stood there he said on behalf of the churches of Southampton we want to tell you we will not rest until we found you 40 foster carers I could have wept that plaque went on the wall in social services as a visible reminder that the church is about the vulnerable and the church is committed to the city because of that story other local authorities got in touch with Home for Good. Can you do the same here? We're working with churches across Bristol, 100 churches trying to find 100 homes in the next three years. Same in Bristol. We're not doing that in Scotland yet. I've heard that Carl's a little bit competitive. I've heard he's sad about Arsenal losing 3-0. I heard he's sad that they're probably not going to make it into Europe and Liverpool are going to win the Champions League. There's a bit in Corinthians where Paul says, hey, you Corinthians, you are giving great stuff. But have you heard about those Macedonians? They are really giving. Hey, friends, I've heard you love Edinburgh. I hear you want to bless this city. I hear you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I hear you want to show people what family is all about. What have you heard of what they're doing in Southampton? And Bristol. I wonder what could be done here. I know P's and G's are up for it. Come on. Would you? Could you? What would it take? We started Home for Good because we know the church is the answer to this problem. We know that children flourish in families, not in institutions. And we know Christian families are empowered by the Spirit to make a difference in the lives of vulnerable people. And so let's do it. Let's bring it on. Let's change the lives of these children. Let's change the outlook of our cities. When we started Home for Good, there were 5,000 kids waiting to be adopted. And there was a shortfall of 9,000 foster families across the UK. And if churches like yours, maybe not as big, maybe not as, with as cool a worship band or as great a preacher, we reckon there are about 15,000 churches. How's your maths? I don't need each of you to adopt 10 children. I didn't bring my van. I have a van because I have nine children. No, seven children, two adults, nine children, seven children. Two adults, seven children, nine seats. Uh, I didn't bring my van. I lose track. It's terrible, isn't it? I didn't bring my van, and if you buy a copy of the Home for Good book or the God is Stranger book, you will get a free child at the end of this meeting. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. You can get a free book if you become a donor, but you can't get any free kids. 
I don't need you all to adopt and foster. I just need one new family per church. And the rest of us to be, I don't know, adopted, fostered, aunties and uncles to the kids that will come into care of this church, that will love them as our family, will cheer them on and open every door that we can to make sure they know they are loved by God and therefore loved by us. I wonder what God might be saying to you tonight in response to this. It might be you're thinking, I'm too young. This isn't for me. I have two answers to that. Number one, I want to sow a seed in your mind. As you think about what your family is going to look like when you're older, could you think about including vulnerable children into that? I've met people, as I said, in their 20s who have made adoption plan A. I've met other people who have mixed it up, like our family. We've got some birth kids, we've got some fostered kids, we've got some adopted kids. Could that be part of your dream? Instead of just 2.2 kids, a dog, a BMW and a nice big house, what about including the vulnerable in your dreams? Number two, I can say to you, I know a 23-year-old single foster carer who's a Christian woman who's doing it because she's driven by God to do it. So this doesn't have to be 10 years away. This could be sooner than you think. The other thing I would say to you is, is God calling you to be involved in caring for the vulnerable? Not just with your family, but in your vocation. What is it you think God has gifted you? Why are you studying at one of the best university cities in the world? Is it that God wants you to lead the charge to bring justice and compassion into a new system, into a new area? I've been amazed by how business and politics and media, people are in those industries trying to help. Could God be lining you up to be a person of influence, not just for your own benefit, but for the sake of the fatherless and the widow? Is that part of God's call? We really, really need Christian social workers. That's one massive need. Social work is one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. We used to need people to get on a boat and go to China and be missionaries there. Do you know what? There are enough Chinese pastors that they can do the job. Right now, one of our most urgent needs is Christians infiltrating every aspect of society. Not that Christians take over, but that we bless this place and start to demonstrate the gospel. Could God be calling you there? Finally, I wonder if God might be saying to you, Use your skills, use your voice now. Let me introduce you to Ailey. Ailey, could you stand up? Ailey, as you might have guessed from her name, is proper Scottish. As we say, down south. Apparently you don't call it England, you call it down south. Is that, is that right? Ailey is the one person from Home for Good who's responsible to help us find a home for one of, every one of the 11,000 children in the Scottish care system that needs a home. That's quite a big job for one person to do. And she is awesome, but maybe you've got some time or some skill or some finance that can get behind her. She's going to be out there. Opportunity for you to go and say, hey, I'm great on social media. Hey, I'm really good at making films. Hey, I'm brilliant at um, poetry. I'm amazing at fashion design or art. What can I do? Go and see her. Tell her what you can do. And she'll help you open doors for vulnerable children. 
We're going to move to a time of response, and then I'm going to zoom out the door and try and catch a plane home. But could the band come up? Could we start that time? I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to ask you if God might, you sense God might have been saying something to you tonight, something about your future, something about the direction of your life, whether you would come out and we would pray for you. As I said, not a promise that you'll have a child that I've brought with me, but a promise that God will direct your steps to care for the vulnerable. That's the call tonight. Could be in your career, could be in your personal life. We're going to bring you here. We're just going to pray for you. We're going to sing, and then we'll pray that God does his work with you. Okay, that's all we're going to do. But just to give you some thinking time with that, I want to tell you how the Biter Boy story ended. This little boy... This three-year-old child with eight different families, in he comes into our house. And he did. He turned everything upside down. I remember that I'd left my phone on the train one time. And um, someone phoned up from the next station and they said, oh, we found your phone, sir, and uh, come and get it. And so I took this little boy, because as far as we know, he'd never been on a train and he's got his three-year-old little hand in my hand, and we're standing behind the yellow line waiting for the train to come. And he's like crazy, can't keep still, can't believe this train's coming. And then the door opens like a spaceship. We've got nice trains down south. And we get on, and he does everything wrong, right? He stands on the seat. Okay, British Rail would have gone nuts. He's standing on the seat. He's got his nose pressed against the window, and as we go, he's shouting everything he can see. Bus, tree, car, sheep, bridge, faster, faster, faster. Everyone in the carriage is in hysterics. Even the city gents with their evening standards on the way home from London are in hysterics. His eyes are as wide as saucers and my heart is pounding. Because I know what this little boy was like when he turned up at my house. Do you remember he had speech delay there's no delay to his speech now he is full of joy and wonder and excitement and I want to sing because in the Bible it says when God looks at us even in our broken state he says that he rejoices over us with singing because God knows our story God knows what we were before but what he's making us Zephaniah 3.17 and I want to sing but I'm a Brit so I just smile. But I thank God I am meeting you on this train. It's an 11-minute journey to the next station, but I am meeting you on this train because as I do my best in some little way to care for the vulnerable, I'm tapping into the very heart of God and there is no sweeter place to be on the planet. And just for a moment, I taste a bit of heaven. Foster care is rubbish and tough and difficult but every moment every now and again you get a glimpse of glory I want to give that glimpse of glory to as many kids as possible and with your help we can change the lives of every child that needs it so had enough thinking time why don't we stand if you're able if you sense God's got a call on your life to care for vulnerable people in some way come out here we'll pray for you and then we'll continue on with our service. Come, come now if you're going to come. We're not going to prolong this. We're not going to drag it out. 
but come if you think God's got a call on your life to care for vulnerable people. Brilliant. Come, come a bit closer. Great. If there's prayer team and people like that, uh, elders or deacons or whatever you guys have, uh, just make sure people have got people that can pray with them. And uh, in good tradition, central tradition, if you're not at the front, you can still reach out an arm uh, towards those that are. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. You are a protector of widows and orphans. And Lord, we thank you for those that are responding right now to your call. Lord, whatever it is you're calling them to do, whether it's a professional change, whether it's to lay down dreams and ambitions and to chase hard after you, whether it's to change the way that they form family, Lord, we pray you would fill our sisters and brothers up with your spirit, your spirit of mercy and compassion and grace. We pray that you give them great courage to make difficult decisions, to put others first, to seek the cause of the vulnerable and the needy. Lord God, would this not just be an emotional moment, Lord, would it be a life direction moment? Lord, we pray for sisters and brothers that because of their commitment, vulnerable people may know your grace and mercy. They would get a glimpse of glory, that children would find homes, that men and women would know your compassion. In Jesus' precious name, amen.